You're listening to TWN Champions, episode 40. Champions, arise! Welcome to the Champions Countdown Podcast, where we summon heroes from across space and time to populate our intergalactic museum, or something like that. This is episode number 40. I'm Rebecca, and with me is an old cow ham, been thwarting rustlers and roping and branding all his live long days, but he'll see you on down the road. It's Will. All I want is people to sing about me and Make crafts in my image and make a day, make a day for me, and, and then name it after me. That's all I ask. It's a modest request. That's all I ask. That's the way to remember me. Well, we'll get forever. some paper grocery bags and cut cowboy boot shapes out of them. It always looks like my cowboy boots. From a crude template. So uh, it's a momentous day. Uh, a momentous occasion since this does mark our last episode of TWN Champions, mm-hmm. mostly because, you know, we, we got to do other stuff. And also I feel like we've talked about all of the stuff we need to talk about. It's all come up before, right? Like, is there a single property, franchise, film, or anything that we have not covered yet? And I think I'm hitting my last ones today. I don't think so. I mean, people have limited patience for the different kinds of Transformers that fit into different <laughs> things, I think. And, you know, like, ultimately, while I do like doing a little research and learning stuff about the character archetypes, I do feel like... I was going to say the character Optimus Prime. And, and the character <laughs> Optimus Prime and, and his ending, speaking of people who came to a very, very uh, uh, good ending. Uh-huh. And so we always do this. It's like, it's not sad. It's not, it's not uh-huh. like this. Thank you. I was going to cover you that. Know, well, we, we don't have to gather around the gym floor in a circle and sing It's So Hard to Say Goodbye to Yesterday. Exactly. We don't have to do that. I mean, you could, you're welcome to do that at your dance. Boy, you this like is to. very uh, prescient <laughs> for some of the things I want to talk about. <laughs> okay, good, good. But yeah, like we're, we are um, continuing to write season three of Curdle Holler. We're in the middle of writing it mm-hmm. right now. It's going great. I'm really excited about that. Yeah, the, the, the episode one was a, was a really good read so far. Yeah, yeah. So we've got one in the can written, and then we're, we're writing the second one right now. And it'll be another six-episode uh, six season, but we're going to drop them like uh, one at a time. Mm-hmm. We think that, that that'll be fun. And hopefully we will drop them in plenty of time for Halloween. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's what we're working on. And uh, we may do another review or something or other podcast in the future. Uh, but like right now we're just like, that's a lot to edit every week. And I'm also trying to focus on doing more like video content for my YouTube channel uh-huh. for my music, which is uh keen Garrity. If you search K E E N G A R R I T Y. And I want to start up, maybe try to do, uh, to branch out a little bit just from music performances, but yeah, like we, we got other content on our plate. Yeah. yeah so. We're, we're stopping this because we are continuing to work on other things too. You know, I, I'm working on writing 
things and working on guitar practice and that sort of thing too. So we'll, we'll be producing and sharing things and yeah, we'll, we'll talk around. more about it at the end. Yeah. We'll talk more about it at the end. I just talked about it a whole lot, but yeah, it's, 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 it's a bit of an ending, but it's also fine. Cause we're also just going to keep running our exactly, mouths about exactly. the exact same things too. And, and also I'll mention, don't also don't let this hang heavy or make this episode weird. We're yeah, gonna it's have not a, weird. We're going to have a, a whole uh, thing. Le- legit good episode that'll yeah. be part of these other evergreen episodes um, in this episode pack. It's not a clip show except for everything is insofar as we can't go very far without talking about like one of our favorite topics, but that's fine. It's yeah. okay. That's how people <laughs> are. Okay. My aunts and uncles are telling the same story. They told me 20 years ago. Every I time saw I see them. One time Andy Richter said, uh, we should all be ashamed of ourselves that we all keep telling the same five stories over and over again for the rest of our lives. <laughs> I know, but we really do. Yeah. What is that about us? I mean, we like we we have them firmed up in our mind, and like we just I don't know. Like I I think we should all make an effort to try new stories out. Like just <laughs> add a new one to your repertoire about something that happened last week. But trouble is, probably like nothing interesting happened. But that's okay. All right. So with all that in mind, what are we talking about today? Well, on today's show, we will count down our personal favorite endings across media, but mostly TV. I have four. Rebecca has four. It's a top eight. Yeah, so so I was thinking this would be like a like an ending to a character or an ending to a story. Uh-huh. I was thinking kind of broadly construed because who cares? We'll do whatever we want. But I do like to think about uh, endings and how you put a bow on a story. Uh-huh. Sometimes it's a death. Sometimes it's a rebirth. Sometimes it's just a moving on to a different factory. I don't know. So, like, what kind of stuff did you have in mind when you were picking your favorite endings? Well, I guess that's probably a good way to talk about how I feel about endings in general. Okay. We should. Yes. I think mainly I don't like endings as a rule. I think that probably wouldn't be surprising people to hear because... In my mind, it's unnatural for things to end. They don't really end. Nothing ends. They change. Like, you get a new career, stardust to people, water to gas. Nothing really ends. So I just don't believe it in principle. (laughs) That's very Aquarius of you. I love it. (laughs) That's some very triple Aquarius energy that that I'm hearing here. And then there are some very uh, literal uh, reasons that I don't like them. And it's because... People who write endings very often do two things that I can't stand. And this is going to sound a little bit insane, but I tried to put this together as logically as I could in my mind. This is your podcast. You say what you want. So I really don't like endings because a lot of times people write them in a way where the ending is intended to be a shared experience among all people who saw the story. And I feel like that erases me, the individual. So... Follow me. So imagine you just watched a TV series or a movie and the ending was probably a little heavy handed and then an emotional song plays at the end. And so, you know, the writers assume you feel a certain way because of what they set up. And other people in the room who just saw this with you may assume you also feel the same way. And anyone who saw the movie also assumes anyone else who saw the movie felt the same way. And then I am erased. And there is no room for personal perspective or feelings or anything. Because yeah, of, I can get that. Yeah, it's like you're changed by other people's perception. That because they looked at you, you changed and everything you're thinking changed. Yeah, They're, yeah, you you don't appreciate being interpolated in that manner. Exactly. Where, where everyone is going to assume um, that everyone will have 
similar feelings about an ending. And I also and hate even that- if you did have those uh, uh, specific feelings, um, if nobody else recognizes that, you might as well not. Well, yeah, and then also feel like it gets really cheap too, because it's like, well, of, like of course you just reminded me of the fragility of life. Of course, <laughs> sure. I'm going to be emotional. Like sure. it sucks. I think about that every day. Yeah, you You're... shouldn't get credit for that. Exactly. The movie didn't make me think about that. I was thinking about that when I was making coffee a minute ago. Like you know, whatever. <laughs> so I, I definitely get that. Like when a writer, particularly when you when they show their hands and you think they think they really yeah. stuck the landing. I can't stand being uh, implicated in a uh, a big. Um, cultural experience <laughs> which is hilarious uh, so like avengers endgame did not exist to in you in fact i watched all the marvel movies up until the last movie and i won't watch it for that reason because i felt like there's no room for me in it well yeah everybody's already had their take exactly and exactly. everyone's already cried exactly and you don't so i feel like i'm playing with... catch up that's what i mean when people hear me say i won't watch that because i feel like i'm playing catch up that's what i mean it's well, weird yeah. but that's how i feel about and it and then also the experience that you're supposed to have has already been written out for you and if you don't watch it and like you can either have yeah. have that experience that everybody else already had and then you're like well where does this leave me as an individual viewer or you can have the contrarian hot take and be like, right. it wasn't that emotional, which is also just as confining. I mean, is it kind of like the, Sh- what is the Schrodinger's cat or whatever? It, I'm going to like, talk about Schrodinger's so you, cat. You know, it was, it's, it's changed because of how it's perceived, or in this case, the opposite, because uh, how it was not perceived. Okay. And, and then extremely briefly, I was just going to say, a lot of writers write endings, I think, is an argument for ignorance. Like, they're saying the story's over. It's the end of wonder. Let's all look away before the most interesting <laughs> part happens. The man finally goes behind the curtain. Therefore, we must all turn our heads and hold hands and sing. And so that's why I don't like endings. So this is a hard episode for you to even come <laughs> up with picks for, maybe. Well, you'll see gonna, the way I handled it. Okay, yeah, we're going we're gonna to learn a lot about how okay. Will feels about endings. And for me, like, I do get that. Like, I, uh-huh. I, I don't feel that nearly as acutely as you do. But I, I get what you're saying. Like, I totally totally do understand that I do you know well my Scorpio nature I love death and rebirth right mm-hmm. like I so I love when an ending comes to a new beginning that's one of my favorite things yeah and I do like to find ways to put a period at the end of the sentence sometimes mm-hmm. because things do keep going on and sometimes it's very mundane but if we can think of a way to make that uh to narrativize that and make that exciting or interesting or insightful or it signals growth or it signals a new beginning, then that's worth something. Yeah, sometimes it's time for a new chapter. Yeah. Yeah, okay. That makes sense to me. All right. Okay. And I also, everybody, I don't really, really believe in astrology. I don't believe in anything, okay? <laughs> so I'm just saying, don't worry about me. All right, well, do you want to start us off with your first pick? Number eight. I'm not much for jumping. Not much for landing, either. You don't have to worry about where you land. Leap of faith. This character is from one of my favorite TV shows and has an ending that I personally could get behind. And if I and, and if I am going to have an ending and I hadn't accepted that yet, um, this would be one that I would... Uh, I I would be happy with. So this is Betty Romer, a reaper from the Showtime television series, Dead Like Me, which ran from 2003 to 2004. 
I like that we have we're starting off with a good Audi's pick because that's that's a there's some more flavor that we'll be experiencing here. But that was a great show. Yeah, it was. Well, yeah, and I don't hear people talking about that show much. A lot of people don't remember it, I think, because I think we watched it on DVD or, or yeah. some very crude streaming service like that was not ready for streaming. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's definitely up there with the best of the prestige cable dramas uh, when you make a li- make a top list of them, but you don't hear it. Um, and you're right, we did rent these uh, from the video store, I remember it was one of those where we went back and was like, okay, we get the next disc, the next disc, the next the disc. The next disc. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, do they have the next season? Uh, do they? I hope they do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it was, um, I mean, it, if you need to be sold on it, I mean, it has to be good because it has Mandy Patinkin. Mandy Patinkin is great in it. Yes. Uh, it was written by Brian Fuller, a yeah. notable Star Trek writer. Uh, uh, Jasmine Guy was in it too. Yes, she, she was. She was She was, she was great. Yeah. She was really good. So uh, if you haven't seen this, or if it's been a long time, uh, because it's now almost 20 years, it's the story of a girl named George who dies and then becomes a grim reaper with some other souls that died at different points in the last century. And Mandy Patinkin is their boss. Does (laughs) that cover it pretty well? Yes, and and it's a very uh, um, everyday kind of death. You know, it's it's sort of like a an unglamorous bureaucratic view of oh, yes, of, yes. The, of the afterlife. Where right. like they're they're, they're like uh, civil servants. Yeah. It's their job. It's kind of, it's like working at the DMV. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Betty Romer is one of these reapers who died sometime in the 1920s in a cliff jumping accident. Uh, she was like jumping in the river for fun, and she got this. <laughs> it was like a Great Gatsby tragedy. It, well, yeah, I think I think <laughs> it was like, supposed to be kind of like that. She's sort of like energetic, kind of flapper like everybody in the 20s was a flapper everyone in the 20s was a flapper if you're a very esteemed lady you were a flapper and she got this memorable ending after the writers were forced to write the actress rebecca gayhart off the show it was actually like a really horrible situation where the actress it looked like accidentally tragically hit a young boy with the car she was driving and he later died and she got wrapped up in legal proceedings during the run of the show as a result of this and so the Showtime executives told Brian Fuller that they just couldn't have a Reaper who had this happening in their real life. And he fought the decision with the executives, but ultimately lost. Yeah, that's a it's a, it's a tough one. You yeah, know? that and was just super, super weird and horrible all the way around. A horrible tragedy and a horrible coincidence, too. So, so yes, it was a terrible situation. And the writing staff had no choice but to close out the story on the Betty Romer character and forced to do this, they ended up doing something really interesting. First of all, I couldn't remember anything about the character except for her ending, which probably told you more about the character than anything else that happened. Um, So their idea was the Reapers are supposed to help everybody who dies find their lights. Uh, And when the people um, find their lights at the end of the episode, they're supposed to jump into it and they go off to whatever their afterlife is. Well, Betty gets more and more curious about this and about the other side. And so she breaks the cardinal rule of the Reapers. And after she escorts a man to his lights, she tells her friend George goodbye. And then she jumps in right after the man, like hitching a ride. Yeah, this is this is a no-no. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what What are you doing? Time to shake things up a bit. Taking back ride. No, Ruth said we can't go where they're going. Open doors and invitation. Gotta jump while the door's open. 
it was a real <laughs> shocker in the episode because they teased it a little bit, but not much. And you're like, oh, you can't do that. And then she just jumps right in, like very happily too. It's not even like a thing of horror or whatever. Like George is shocked, but she's like, Betty's really happy to jump in. And so I can, you can imagine why I love this. I mean, first of all, it's taking control of your own soul. I think that's cool. And then second, um, it's also exploring some kind of experience we don't even know how to represent in a story. And it's like the purest example of uh, a new chapter and not a absolute end. I, I just I thought it was just a great, great little ending that's always stuck with me. Yeah, it's definitely uh, uh, a way to represent the unknown in a, in a, a very neat, beautiful little way. It's, it's the most interesting part of the, of the story, like the, the thing nobody else has said before, the things nobody else has seen before, the thing you're going to be most curious about. I love that. Yeah, yeah. And, and are, do you think, is Dead Like Me available to stream anywhere right now? I don't think it is. I'm not sure. Well, it's not on the big ones, no, because it's a Showtime thing. If it comes up and you find it on a streaming platform, if it, like, you know, just like the, I don't know, several weeks ago when I was excited about Freaks and Geeks and then Hulu or somebody yeah. got it, it it may happen. So if it does happen, this this series is an underappreciated gem from the Audis, and you should watch it. Yeah, it's even got like weird little sci-fi things. Like there are these little gremlin things that only the Reapers can see, and it's sort of like a long-term story about what the deal with those are. It's really cool. Yeah, and then I also love their whole deal about the only time they can be seen by the living is on Halloween. I just, yeah, <laughs> I love Halloween mythology, obviously. But anyway, yeah, no, if, if it does become available on a streaming platform, uh, check it out. It's great. It's cool. Number seven. Sweet home Alabama. Oh, sweet home. Where the skies are so blue. Oh, yes, sir. All right, we will not leave the Audis just yet. Okay, this is this is my fanciful choice, okay? Okay, often the best ending is not determined by how a character is left by a script or where they're at when the credits roll. No, 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 no. The best ending is found in how we remember a character. Okay. And for that reason, I have no choice but to pick Diane from MTV's 2006 documentary, Fat Camp. Huh. I remember okay, the show. Okay. All right. And then they had a, she was also in the follow-up, Return to Fat Camp 2007, I think. If you remember this, this was a golden age of trash reality television. Mm -hmm. And there are tons of things about it that wouldn't fly today. Uh, the first of which is being, of course, calling it Fat Camp, right? But this is a documentary that follows a group of teenagers around a very real place called Camp Pocono Trails, which is a weight loss camp, and it does still exist. So if anybody wants to know, like, we haven't moved past trying to make teenagers lose weight. Now, here are the obvious disclaimers that I need to make before I move on talking about Diane, who is our queen and we love. Okay, the obvious disclaimers are this. First of all, intentional weight loss is something that we now recognize can be very traumatizing and very triggering for a lot of teenagers, especially. Like, that is a really vulnerable age. And I think nowadays we're a lot less likely to be pushing that on kids. Mm -hmm. um, you know, especially when they're not done growing, their hormones are still changing, there's still a whole lot going on there. And we recognize that that insistence on a certain body type is really ultimately harmful for kids uh -huh. and teens. 
Um, now, that being said, there are teenagers who probably did benefit from this environment and actually wanted to go to this place because ultimately it was a place where it was a controlled environment where they were encouraged to do exercise all day. And a lot of them wanted to lose weight. So it's not like this. This is not one of those um, Paris Hilton, Utah wilderness camps where they <laughs> force you to be there and everything like that. Uh-huh. So while in, in turn, like maybe it's a bit problematic and we don't think the same way about it as we do now as we did back then. I think that there are responsible ways to encourage teenagers to uh, take control of their health and change their bodies if they like without fixating on unhealthy parts of it, right? So we'll just go ahead and say that. Now, talking about the show from an Audie's reality TV show perspective, this is explosive television because all it is is teen drama in a controlled environment where tensions are high and an imposed social structure and a self-created hierarchy and all of the drama that comes along with that. I mean, it's an all-time high. So this is amazing reality TV for that reason. One thing that people who report going to weight loss camp tend to agree on is that the worst one of the worst things about it is the fact that the same like high school drama and dynamics that you have back home do tend to recreate themselves in these isolated environments like you will have the popular kids picking on the less popular kids and why are they popular and why are they not popular and they're all talking about each other again uh, it's probably rough if you're a kid experiencing it, if you're getting bullied even at weight loss camp like you are back home. But from a reality TV producer perspective, this is gold, yeah, okay? Yeah, sure. Just put yourself in the mindset of like a Joe Francis-esque producer in the, in the Audis. So, but, but we're going to step back from all of that for a second, and we're going to talk about who we remember from this show, which is Diane. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you about Diane. All right. Diane is the daughter of the infirmary nurse, and she is the whiniest, most unpleasant person at the whole camp. But what's funny is how fondly people think of Diane now. So I'm going to tell you, here's some, here's some Diane moments, okay. okay? So Diane's big thing is she's crying all the time to get out of physical activities. And her mom is the infirmary nurse, so she's always going to her mom's nurse office and, like, trying to, like, weasel out of activities. At one point, she tells the camp director that she fell down three times and twisted her ankle four times. (laughs) And at one point, she starts crying because the girls tell her half unkindly that she needs to take a shower because uh-huh. she had heretofore refused. Uh-huh. At one point she demands ointment and she dramatically face plants off a chair accidentally on purpose in her tantrum for uh-huh. the ointment. Okay, and let me just say that these behaviors maybe sound troubling, but I do truly believe that this was not trauma-informed. I think that she was just immature, and she was slow to mature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, it's worth noting that she was homeschooled, and going to weight loss camp was a way for her to practice being around other kids so her mom would decide if she was ready to go to real school for (laughs) high school. But what's hilarious about Diane is that She is just this, she just represents the id and she is fully and completely 100% herself and her own person. So she's kind of immune to all of the drama Mm -hmm. because it's like, what are you going to say about Diane? Diane's her own weird person. She's just Diane. 
and she doesn't get pulled into all of the he said she said terrible like back talking drama there's a scene where there's a cover band at the camp and they're playing for all the campers and Diane, like the cameraman knows this is great. Like Diane is having a blast dancing to the band, like just living her best life. And then walking back to the cabins, singing Sweet Home Alabama into the night with gusto. <laughs> and at the end, you're like, well, what is, how did Diane perceive the entire experience? She says, camp has helped me get along with other kids a little better, but I still don't understand them too well. Just like, how can they be so stupid? (laughs) (laughs) Everybody else was the problem. (laughs) Yes. And so it's really funny. Like, I feel like, you know, this is like, this is a a situation that was just tailor made to make somebody miserable and an outcast. But everybody took such a shine to Diane that in the end, she is the shining star of this entire enterprise. Well, now because everybody uh, has learned how to uh, behave and perform so much from TV and internet, we are authenticity vampires. And yes. as soon as we saw her, we're like, she doesn't know how to perform. And we exactly. just eat it up. Diane was just authentically living in the moment. Yeah. And so people in the comments are just like rolling, just loving, loving how Diane comes across in this <laughs> documentary that was arguably setting out to make her look bad, which mm-hmm. is horrible, but come this mm-hmm. is okay. So uh, one person comments, I want to live every day like Diane at the concert. And then somebody else says, Diane is my spirit animal. And then somebody else says in a highly upvoted comment, Diane is like the 26 year old me. I need my ointment. Falls off chair and dies. And so people are just like loving Diane. And if you want to know what happened to Diane, well, she's alive, doing her thing, and thriving. She is currently living in Colorado. She's working as a substitute teacher. She has a dog. Um, and really, she's not even very active on social media either. She had a Twitter, and she tweeted three times in 2012 about her roommates at the <laughs> University of Southern Mississippi. Says that she was craving Chick-fil-A and lamented that they didn't deliver. And that's all we've heard from Diane. But Diane is a queen doing great. (laughs) And Diane, the ending is how you are remembered so fondly in all of your glory and your pure, unadulterated, authentic self. Number six. Get a grip, John. Okay. Um... You're not here to kill me. I figured that part out for myself. So what's the deal? My mission is to protect you. Yeah? Who sent you? You did. This pick knows now why you cry, but he cannot. It's the Model 101 Terminator, the Arnold Terminator, from the 1991 film Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Aww. How much did you and your sister like Edward Furlong? I loved Edward Furlong. I think my sister, she liked older dudes at that point. That was like the midst. That, well, was, that was the beginning of her Gary Oldman phase, <laughs> which is hilarious. She went, she went old fast. But like, yeah, I was exactly the right age. and He was 13. I thought Edward Furlong was cute. I thought he was hot stuff. Yeah. I loved him. He was cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was cool. I think he was so cool because he wasn't out of uh, casting. They found him at a... Uh, boys and girls club 
and uh, bless him. And they uh, they just they just picked him out because he was authentic and he was cool. That it's a very weird Hollywood thing to do is just to pick children out of you know day camps and just be like, <laughs> here, be in Terminator. <laughs> Well, he was definitely a big part of why the movie was so great. So did you know he was in that Star Trek Renegades YouTube series? Oh, yeah, I forgot about He was like a mechanic or something. He's, he's struggled in his adulthood, yeah. and I don't love that. Yeah, I feel like I want to say I read he was doing better. I, I don't know. but I hope he's doing yeah, better. Yeah, he he's really cool. Um, also, weird stuff. Now we're talking about uh, weird casting for this. Also, uh, Billy Idol uh, was up for the role as the other evil Terminator. He had the look. Yeah. And then also, so was the singer from Wasp. Isn't that weird? So That one is weird. So anyway, it was a very 90s time. So uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, so this pick is the ending of T2. But to appreciate it, we have to do a quick recap of the story. Because I think we all remember the big scenes, like the shotgun motorcycle chase and the liquid metal man going through the bars. Or the Linda Hamilton pull-ups. Yeah. But the story is, John Connor is the leader of the human resistance in the future, where the artificial intelligence Skynet starts a nuclear holocaust in 1997. John reprograms a Terminator robot in the future and sends it 35 years back in time to protect his younger self from the T-1000, a prototype Terminator controlled by Skynet. So the good Terminator is Arnold, and the bad one is Robert Patrick, okay? Yeah. All right. Gotcha. Um, now, because the young John Connor grew up in foster homes, the Arnold robot becomes like a father to Edward Furlong. And uh, John teaches Arnold stuff like how to be cool and how to say a la de vista baby and all that stuff. Right? Okay. <laughs> yes. Uh, so uh, I was reading in the trivia that Linda Hamilton said Edward Furlong and Arnold got along immediately but she was always like cringing because she could overhear them in between takes talking about girls and stuff and she says they got along so well because they were emotionally the same age <laughs> <laughs> isn't that funny that's a funny read <laughs> yes so it takes two hours but arnold and linda hamilton and edward furlong finally deal with skynet and the bad terminator but the mission is not over because arnold says that the chip in my head must be destroyed so no one can use it to make another Terminator. And so, Edward Furlong begs Arnold to stay, but Arnold wipes John's tears and gets on a chain and has Linda lower him into the molten steel. But at the moment when only his hand is left, he gives a thumbs up as he sinks, sinks into, the, into the lava. Which is beautiful. Yeah, it's very beautiful. It's almost more poignant because it's almost more childlike because Arnold is such a bad was such a bad actor then like i know he's playing a robot and a robot's supposed to sound wooden but it's almost like he went the other way and he tries to have emotion as the robot and it somehow makes it worse like when you go back and watch it he's like he says that line about i know now why you cry but i cannot you know and then he's like, and then and he's like no you have to say he's like i have to do it it's just very funny when you go back and watch it later it's, it is funny that is like schrodinger's robot we're like it's like is he feeling emotions or is this just a bad performance like yeah, and I'm it's not kind sure. of both and we don't know and it's okay if we don't know yeah he seems like he would be a lot better at it now like he's such a good speaker and everything now it's just it's just funny to watch uh there was an alternate ending uh where instead of linda hamilton giving like the optimistic voiceover about you know like you know now there's hope for the future and you kind of wonder how it's going to play out they had a like a scene where she's like on a park park bench as a uh, older woman and she's talking about how john connor became a congressman and all this kind of stuff and uh 
it's definitely better not to have that. It's a lot better to have it open-ended, I think. Yeah, it's cool. even though they did sort of take advantage of that by having many more Terminator movies, some of them not good. But. I know it was kind of it's kind of weird how you know this movie was so good. We just expected there was going to be such a rich franchise, but they just couldn't capture what was so good about about the second one. Yeah, the, was, that was the magic, and it was such a good ending because um, he opened up a new chapter for them. It was not just that he died; it was that he sacrificed himself so that their story could continue. Yes, and we like when robots do that. Yeah, robot sacrifice is the best sacrifice because they didn't take humanity for granted, and so it, it it means so much more for them to do it. They what they what they finally what they finally uh, were able to achieve, they'll give right back up because they understood it so well. Yeah, a robot doesn't have ego the way that we do. You know, or maybe they do. Maybe they got it, and that's why it's even more of a sacrifice. Well, because yeah, they yeah. had to earn theirs, and then they give it right back up. I don't know. It's it's I better when a robot either. does it. We do love a good robot self-sacrifice. No, it'll be okay. Stay with us. It'll be okay. I have to go away. No, don't do it. Please, don't go. I must go away, John. Number five. Ich Luke I'm such an idiot. Look. You believed it because you wanted to believe it. Your true feelings were too gross and icky for you to face. I did not want them dead. You did too. I did not. Did too. I did not. I did too. I did not. Did too. Did not. Did too. Did now, talking about new beginnings from a grim present, but I love it. This is a, a moment of teenage angst that turns deadly, but that will hint at the promise of a new future. And that is the ending for Veronica Sawyer in the 1988 film Heathers, which I've never really gotten to talk about at this podcast yeah. before. And I'm glad that I get to. Oh, we're sort of matching eras a little bit. I know. Uh, just, you know, what? What it's always going to boil down to 1986 as the average year of everything being <laughs> being formative. Now, I don't know. I don't know why, but this is it's working. I like it. So if you've never seen Heather's, what's wrong with you? You have to watch it. But um, it is the story of a privileged yet smart and cynical protagonist played by Winona Ryder in the middle of a toxic friend group and with the help of a cool new guy in town. Christian Slater, she finds herself killing off the terrible people she knows, but staging it to make it look like suicides, okay? This is an incredibly black comedy. Mm -hmm. Like, this, this, is, this is definitely dark comedy, and it's also very, very biting satire. And everyone in the world has tried to copy the magic of this script, and they just, they can't do it. Like, everybody wants their movie to be like Heather's. They just can't. They just can't do it. it. You know, it's got a very teen edgelord point to it, but it's still a very true one, which is um, we're all fixated on the wrong details and we live according to rules that don't even make sense to us, right? Mm -hmm. and, and how stupid that is, ultimately. Mm -hmm. We have real tragedies in our lives, but our reactions to them are very hollow and very scripted. And so nothing feels real and nothing is real. So let's just deconstruct it and build it back better. Uh -huh. All right. 
at the end of this film, so I, I guess just before I talk about like the moment of the ending or whatever, because I mean, this is a very old movie. It's okay if I spoil it. And if you don't want to hear it spoiled, just fast forward. But I loved this movie as a kid. And, you know, Christian Slater was like the coolest guy and Winona Ryder was the coolest girl mm -hmm. and they were very cool together and we loved it. And we couldn't get enough. <laughs> Young love. JD, the bad boy, played by Christian Slater, has an ultimate plan to have the student body all die together in a bombing that he will orchestrate, mm -hmm. but he will make it look like they all agreed to commit mass suicide. And the way that he does this is they circulate a petition and they tell everybody that the petition is to get this cool new group, Big Fun, to play at the school. But, of course, he's going to forge it and make it look like they're all agreeing to die together. Veronica figures this out at the last minute and manages to foil the plans. What is funny is that they have this very dramatic confrontation in the school's boiler room during a pep rally. And um, at the very last minute, she manages to stop JD from doing what he's going to do but he does detonate himself uh -huh. and the last the last little bit of the film shows veronica completely like covered with soot uh completely disheveled looking tired and world weary and just like what is going on and in the last scene of the film she lights a cigarette and then invites the very picked on kid martha dunstock to uh, hang out with her and watch movies on prom night. And uh, she basically tells the old guard that like, yeah, things are gonna be different around here. Because now she's seen everything completely de deconstructed, completely like ash at her feet. And there's just no way that we can continue to live as though the world is the same stupid world that it was moments ago. And so I really just like this because this is a really happy ending for a teenage girl who uh, otherwise didn't have anything to look forward to except more of the same in college. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know? <laughs> and you know what? I'm thinking about my current life, and I'm thinking about how uh, the world has changed so much and everything was so crappy, and then we got such new perspective from the COVID stuff and working from home for a year, and now all the companies want to do a land grab and say, no, 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 back to normal. Everything's back to normal. 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 Yeah. I, I'm going to press the normal button. I'm going to say normal. Yeah. Everything is normal. And, act, and acting like uh, they can just act like they can summon everybody back and pretend like it didn't happen and then we don't all demand remote work options now. <laughs> yeah, which is not the reality. Everyone keep demanding your remote work. And if you are a frontline worker, know that your is essential. So it, it is the time for labor to rise up and tell like the people in charge that you're not going to do it for wages anymore because you're not. Like that's I think that's becoming clearer yeah. and clearer. And I love the sycophant people who think maturity is affirming authority and they're like but we're already getting these one or two little things they're the same people who would have made sure we didn't have a weekend or maternity leave seriously we'd be working at we'd be at the workhouse working for what did you say the other day mr cholera you know <laughs> right. pounding out whatever we're doing right and and I, I think that's the reason why like an ending like this is so appealing especially to a young mind is that we dream of crumbling the status quo and crumb like just crumbling what we know and just say no we see it for what it is and we're gonna do it right mm -hmm. and what's frustrating is that in the real world 
we don't. Yeah. And I guess what I was inelegantly trying to say too, is I think sometimes people think that, uh, maturity is trying to sound like the adult, which people often conflate with the authority. And it's very mature to challenge the status quo for what's right. Correct. That is true. It takes the most maturity to to look around and say, maybe what the adults are doing is stupid. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's dumb. Yeah. You know, maybe we don't need to be working seven days a week, 12 hours a day at a Frito-Lay factory because that's not right. Yeah. It takes maturity to be the person to question and challenge what the status quo is doing. And I am acutely aware of this being 40 years old or almost Mm -hmm. 40 years old, the oldest millennials we are. The more of us that take power and have positions of authority, I do feel that we are obligated to examine that and not just keep doing the same old crappy thing that we've been doing because it's not doing anybody right (laughs) so anyway be like veronica and emerge out of the ashes of your high school boyfriend who has just blown himself up (laughs) and uh light a cigarette and get on with your life but it's a new world where you don't acknowledge the artificial barriers that were holding you back number four we we, uh, i mean everything started we set everything in motion. It, 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 it's like the chicken and the egg. Will, the chicken and the egg. We, we think it started in the past, but it didn't. It started right here in the future. That's why it's getting larger in the past. I think I know what the captain is talking about. If I'm not mistaken, he's describing a paradox. Yes, right, that's it. His next pick is not an anomaly in the past, present, or future. It is Captain Jean-Luc Picard in the episode All Good Things, the last episode, or two episodes, of Star Trek The Next Generation. Aww. You know I like to bring up the Star Trek ones whenever Look, I can. I had to do it. we got to talk about Star Trek. You know, I'm honestly, well, whatever. Okay, no, yeah. Also, Star you know Trek. I like to do this. I like to turn right around and say, do you remember this? Do you remember any of the finale off the top of your head? I mean, I know we watched it together, but what what do you recall of that? Does he... Does, he go to France. He does. He yeah. does go to France. Yeah. He lives his beautiful life in the countryside on his yeah. chateau. Yeah, his future self does. Yeah. 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 The, so the, I remember that. I, yeah. re- I remember a good chateau. Yeah. The big things are uh, future data gets a skunk stripe in his hair to look distinguished. Um, it's like a pretension. It's you know what's funny. terrible is that Picard overwrote some of my memories of. Well, they borrowed, they built on that a little bit. We'll talk about that. Yeah, Um, and then they conveniently just decided whatever for some other stuff. Yes, 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 okay. Uh, Dr. Crusher has has her own ship called the Pasteur, which I enjoyed quite a bit as a science vessel. (laughs) Admiral Riker shows up to blow stuff up. Plus, we get the Q continuum, which is great. So, we talk about things being subjective, and we might even entertain that you don't like Star Trek, but I can't imagine any, anyone thinking that this oh, wasn't... one. Uh, not me. Yeah, one. Not you. <laughs> yeah. I can't imagine anyone thinking this wasn't one of the best last episodes of a show ever. It was just such a good wrap-up, and it's really a Picard story. So, in this two-part story, Picard is time-jumping between the Enterprise's first mission at Farpoint, the present and his retirement 25 years in the future. And no one believes him that he's time jumping, but he then encounters Q, 
who's uh, the big judge super alien that was from the first episode. Uh, he's this obnoxious, omnipotent being. He's space Loki. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Who explains that there is... But more powerful than Loki. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and who's, and who's old enough to have more authority, I think. And he explains that there is an an anomaly that exists in each period, and it's humanity's last chance to prove themselves to the Q continuum. And if they don't, humanity will be destroyed. Why? Sorry! That's not a yes or no question. You forfeit the rest of your questions. Oh, I expected as much. You're such a limited creature. A perfect example of why we made our decision. The trial never ended, Captain. So we get to see all the cool ships in the future and all these old characters come back. And you get to see Picard really test his relationships with everybody across all the time periods because he's asking them to believe crazy things or to, um, in some cases, sacrifice themselves for like good all the good of time. And it's thematically perfect about the potential of humanity. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a good, such a good episode. You know, so this is a good example of it's the cl- it's not the closing of a book; it's the end of a chapter, and it sets up DS Nine and all the TNG movies, and in a way, uh, the new Picard TV show. So if we think about it that way, uh, I feel like this is complicated a little bit by the existence of the Picard TV show. And I want to talk about it a little bit. And I'll start by saying I don't hate the show. They're, they do a, a good job with some things. Like, I think they marry the old aesthetic of Star Trek really well with what we consider to look futuristic now. And a lot of the actors are quite good. Uh, but what do you what bothers you about the new Picard show? And in what way do you think it sort of messes with Picard's story? I definitely think, I'm not even to get into my big gripes, which I've already done at length on this podcast, yeah. but I think they got something essentially wrong about him, where in the beginning of the first Picard, like in the Picard pilot, there was a whole bunch of stuff about how he was just, oh, you're just so stubborn, and he has to do his own thing. He just has to do things his way. And there was just some insistence by telling and not showing mm-hmm that Picard was different than we all remembered him to be. And not like fundamentally or completely wrong, but just there was this insistence that he was a way that he was not. Like, yeah, like he was so hard-headed and it was, it was causing problems. And we had seen, like I think even especially in the movie First Contact, that's what the whole thing was about. You know, that big scene where um, his buddy, I can't remember her name, you know, says you destroyed your little ships, you know, and he has to have his Captain Ahab moment where he's not narrow-mindedly focusing on catching the whale, you know, he has to think about the bigger picture. I mean, we've been through this so many times, it's not true. Right, and it's not true. And it was also jarring to see, like, they did, like, some news, like, it was like a news interview concept or whatever, where they were really just hitting you over the head with like Picard had to do things his own way. It's like, I really don't think he did. No, he was very good about Starfleet protocol and diplomacy. That was like the joke is this, you know, like on DS9 is that we can't always do things like the Enterprise did, you know? Yeah, and and I don't appreciate how for the convenience of the story to keep it going, they had to write him in a way that wasn't true to the character. And I think you didn't have to. And, and No, they didn't have to. They could have even yeah. had the same conflict, I think. The same I, general conflict. Yes, and and I, I was going to say, if you were going to extend his story, I think they missed a huge opportunity that was right there for them where he is older now 
and he needs his story to continue and he still has work to do, but he is fighting against his own mortality. And I won't give away the ending of season one, but they take that away. There's no drama in him being um, an aging, dying man. And you could have seen him have all these conflicts with like the uh, Borg uh, physiology that he has now. Maybe he makes some sort of... uh, dark deal to extend his life a little more. Maybe the Borg are talking to him. Um, it was such a big miss. And he wasn't like an agent for himself either. He's always just sort of um, going along and then everybody's like picking on him for being old or being stubborn. You know, he's just, they missed the character a lot. I, I really do think that they did. Yeah. And we're at a time where I feel like there are plenty of talented fans who probably could have written a better I think so spec too. script for a I Picard so spinoff than what actually happened. Like, I'm not a working writer in Hollywood, but mm, I, I, I'd have done a better job. <laughs> I I'm think so, say. too. So, you know, <laughs> I, like, I like that his story continues and maybe it'll get better. But, um, you know, I think it's instructive for what we expect for the end of a story and what a new chapter looks like. Also, a 21-year-old actress cannot play a PhD convincingly. The end. <laughs> yes, I agree. Or an MD, whatever she agree. wants. Agree, even if she's a robot. Number three. Let's revisit an ending that a lot of people took issue with and people won't shut up about to this day but I think is pretty straightforward in its ambiguity. Okay. Which sounds oxymoronic, but let's talk about the 2007 ending for Tony Soprano uh-huh. in the show The Sopranos. Final episode, Made in America. To call this one of the big ones that have <laughs> has, that has perplexed and confused everyone and also maybe made some people mad and some people not would be an understatement. Uh-huh. Um, famously, if you all will take a trip back to 2007, what happens is that the last bit of the episode takes place in a diner. And Tony is there with his wife, Carmela, and his son, AJ, the unsung hero of the series with his <laughs> new metal shirts and his puka shells. And uh, they're waiting for his daughter, Meadow, to get there. And in the very last bit, we see the cameras focusing on some sketchy guy in a members-only jacket in the bathroom who looks like he could be a hitman. And then there's a song playing on the jukebox, and that song is Don't Stop Believing." And every time the bell rings of the diner door, Tony looks up, perpetually wary of, of who might be coming through the door and how careful he needs to be in his life of crime. Mm-hmm. In the last moments, Meadow finally arrives at the diner door, opens it, Tony looks up, fade to black, 10 seconds of black screen. And that was the ending. Uh Uh-huh. And people panicked. They were like, what's wrong with my HBO? It went out at the best part of the whole series when Tony Soprano's gonna get shot by that man in the bathroom, I think, or maybe he didn't, or I don't know. And then that was the end of the series. Right. So it's kind of funny because there have been a lot of debates about like, well, did he die or did he not? Did he live? 
Because what's hilarious is like, y'all, it was a purposefully ambiguous ending. Yeah, it's so crazy. People thought they made a mistake or something. Or yeah, or that like, or that there was an answer one way or the other. Because being a writer, you know how it is. It's like, well, I want people to think about what I was doing was. And people are like so single-minded that they're like just what happened? did he get shot just tell me like just quit did the chairs man get with diane or not <laughs> exactly they just want to know they just want to know and people do a lot of talking even to this day about like what was it all but of course uh david chase the creator of the sopranos has been asked and pressed about it time and time again and his answer will maybe satisfy you or maybe not but i just wanted to talk a little bit about why i like the ending here for tony Mm -hmm. soprano why i like what he did and i am a maybe not a defender of the the way that it went down exactly but i i totally get what he was trying to do (laughs) Because I'm an intellectual. No, like, okay, the way that they explain it is just that, okay, this is a mob story. How do you end up if you're a mob story? Either you got to go to jail because you get caught because crime doesn't pay or you get killed. Because again, crime doesn't pay and you are a victim of your own karma and the circumstances and the risks that you take. And both of those are, in a way, kind of boring. I mean, right? What I like is that this ending heavily implies that he dies right there. And the reason being that the the people have astutely deconstructed every shot. They spend a lot of time in this last little bit of the episode showing Meadow being late to their meeting at the restaurant. Mm -hmm. And they show her struggling to parallel park. And they show her like, you know, just not arriving there with the rest of the family like she's supposed to. And at the same time, they're showing the sketchy guy in the bathroom who ostensibly could be sent by one of Tony's many enemies to assassinate him. And like in the, in the Godfather, that's where Michael goes and gets the gun. Exactly. The exactly. Yeah. So therefore, the fact that Meadow is late is significant because when that bell rings and she arrives at the door, the viewer, the discerning viewer realizes then that the would-be assassin in the bathroom, if he opened the door and wanted to shoot, he has a clear shot of Tony because Meadow has not taken her place beside him at the booth. Okay. And that is why people are like, okay, he probably died. And the creator is like, yes, perhaps he did. And this is Schrodinger's Tony Soprano. Because Uh is he dead or is he not? In that moment, this is a Schrodinger's cat situation where these pieces are all there. And you don't know whether he's dead or not unless you look in the box. You can't. But the whole point of it, it doesn't even matter. Tony Soprano has lived a life where something was bound to catch up with him, right? Because they have this ongoing story about the FBI being after him. He has many, many enemies, and anyone could have wanted him dead. But I really like this because this captures one particular moment in this whole chaotic life where everything is going kind of okay. His family is together, strong. He's just won the turf war with New York, you know, he's uh, uh, perpet- He's always going to be wary. He's always going to be looking around, you know. But in this moment, everything is kind of okay. And if Tony does perish right there at that moment, he dies with everything as good as it could be in his mind. You know what I mean? Yeah. I th- it is interesting because I, t- until I'm hearing you talk about it, I always felt like 
he probably lived because I felt like they did a lot of work to set up how um, even thing, though things are resolved, nothing really changes, and it's just like a new version of the same book is about to start. But it could, st- it would, st- but <laughs> that's probably so true that even if Tony died, that same story is going to keep playing out because for generational reasons and hierarchical exactly. reasons. Like they, like AJ was talking up his new script he's working on, which sounded like pathetic and hilarious, just like Christopher right. uh, from earlier <laughs> in the in the uh, series. And so you know the same stuff's going to keep spinning out, whether he dies or not. Which is also another reason it doesn't matter exactly. because there's going to be a new chapter, and you know what it's going to be like. Exactly. And in that moment, it's just everything. There's. If that was the end for him, there's a sense of peace there because that mm-hmm. it's like frozen in time right there at that yeah. exact moment. And uh, uh, it is kind of, it's more interesting. You don't know. It, it doesn't even matter. It's Schrodinger's cat. It doesn't matter whether uh, his life ended right there because any one of us, our life is equally fragile and we could perish at any time i'm not saying that there's a hitman in the bathroom of the buffalo wild wings and he's gonna come get you but i'm just saying there's always the sort of damocles hanging over our heads and that was i think ultimately the point of the scene was just to show that life is fragile you know it could end in the blink of an eye for any one of us and that i don't know whether that is a point of existential terror um, honestly, I kind of like the idea of my life being taken like instantly and I didn't know that it was going to happen. <laughs> I would kind of prefer that to the opposite, but I don't know what, talk to me again after it happens. I'll let you know. But, um, yeah, like it, ultimately for any of us, life is fragile. And, um, I like the idea of Tony being frozen right there at that moment. And you don't see him retire and you don't see him go to jail and you don't see him doddering and you don't see him losing power to a younger person because AJ gets a gold chain and thinks he's cool. Like you don't see any of that. Um, you, he just gets to go out on top. I went ahead and ordered some for the table. Number two. Although we've come to the end of the road, it's time for my next pick. This is the song End of the Road by Boys to Men. I cannot believe that you made that. That is so funny. Did you pick no, it's just funny though. Like, it's just funny because I mentioned it. Like I saw, we don't share the same brain as much as it feels like it sometimes. Like earlier today, everybody, this is just hilarious. Earlier today, I was gonna make uh like a fried egg and avocado toast because I'm a filthy millennial, as we've mentioned before. And I asked Will if he wanted some because like it was like an annoying time of day, and I was like just thinking if we could eat now and get it out of the way. And he was like. Okay, because I could hear him just being like, he didn't want to deal with no, it. No, I said no thanks. Well, exactly. But in your heart, you <laughs> did decide like moments later that you did want it. And you were like, oh, I should have told her yes. But I didn't hear no thanks. I heard, okay. And so I gave it to you because I knew like, it's like I'd picked up on your the radio of your brain. And like, I knew, I knew the answer telepathically even though i didn't hear my ears correctly like he wants that so i just made it for him 
Anyway, it's just funny. I did not know that you were going to pick this. I had no idea. That's just funny that I mentioned it. That's just hilarious. Well, that's because we are in coolie high harmony. You and I, <laughs> our brains. Oh. <laughs> uh, Boys to Men was really a big deal in the 90s. Did you have that tape or CD? Did no, you run it? No, I did. I was already pretty alt at that point. So oh, like, I, I was see. like too cool for them. Yeah, we but... were we were not. Uh, we loved Boys to Men at my house. They were in the first group of CDs that we got from Columbia House. Of course. When it was all uh, Aerosmith and Black Sabbath and then also Boys to Men. And then also Bonnie Raitt. Uh, <laughs> I don't think she made the cut that or dad already had that. Um, so I remember we got whatever the album it was that had that cover of yesterday on it. I can't remember. Maybe it was this one. I don't remember. But anyway, uh, I'll tell you why this is my pick for an inning. But, uh, first for a little background on the song, do you remember much about the video or anything like that? Um, now, okay. They did. There was a funeral in the video. Wasn't there? <laughs> wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait, hang I don't on. Think oh, so. no, the end of the road. Never mind. Yeah, I was yeah. thinking it's so hard to say goodbye. Oh, right, right. There is a funeral in that one. They're like pouring wine into a, over a casket. And yeah. anyway, okay. You know, no, no. Oh, so end of the road. No, I don't remember much about this one. It's basically them uh, wandering around the train station and grappling with a difficult breakup. Like a lot of like head hanging and shaking their heads to each other and stuff like that. So they were like, we need to do this on a budget so we can't afford like a girlfriend for each one of you to break up with. That's just way too much. Sometimes they cut to one guy and one girl who's like mad breaking up with this one guy, but is not a boys to men. Okay. Uh, it's not, a, it's not one of the boys. No, it's to not men. one of the boys to men. And I think, and it was written for, uh, the movie boomerang, the Eddie Murphy movie okay. about, about his breakup and B- Babyface was the co-writer and he was going to sing it, but he gave it to boys to men. And it was, as a, he should it have, it was a massive hit. It was like, um, I think it broke, the Elvis Presley record for longest number one streak. It was a big hit. Can we just say that Babyface, you know, like the what it must take to be like, I've written this killer song and I'm not going to keep it for myself. Yeah. I need to give it to someone else and it will be a mega hit and then I'll be very rich for the rest of my life. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, Babyface Good was producer. like the man. He still is. I love yeah. Babyface, whatever. <laughs> well, uh, the reason I picked it is because... This was the song that played during a weird episode of my life. I think I may have even mentioned this, but I'll, I'll discuss it in detail. <laughs> okay, I think I know the story. Okay, when we were in school, was it a thing that all band directors were kind of immature in some way? Like, it's hard to explain, but it's not just like a small town thing or a small town male teacher thing, but like... Band directors specifically had some sort of like, or like arts teachers, because I, yeah. I didn't. My band director was a mess in other in other ways, but my uh, well, drama the, the teacher, head band director was always like a uh, very um, emotionally repressed, like uh, military guy, <laughs> right. and then right. the assistant band directors were all like artsy, immature. Yeah, yeah. Why? And I guess it was just sort of like a. It's what happens when you didn't get to spread your wings the way you thought you should. And so you're always like showing off too much or something. I don't know what it's about. Or you really sought out that environment where you could always feel like the coolest fish in the pond, like the coolest, biggest fish in the pond. I think there's something to that. Yes. 
So my, I'm, not, I'm not saying everyone who does that. Right. I'm just saying there is a personality And type. frankly, as an artsy person who grew up in a small town, this uh, career appealed to me a lot, and I thought I was going to be a band director. So, right. so, yes. Well, yeah, we don't have that many ideas about how you can be a creative person and use art in a meaningful yeah. way. I mean, and teaching is the only thing you see modeled for you. And unfortunately, a lot of us did not have great teachers yeah. fulfilling that role. <laughs> and I mean, there are great teachers. And there absolutely job, are. Blah, 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 no, no, no. There Absolutely but this are. definitely was a an archetype as these guys who were like always like performing way too big in in the or who wanted to be very important and were very arch in the way they talked about everything. Oh yeah, yeah. So my first middle school band director, I'll call him Mr. Smith. I actually liked a lot, but he was very into being a band director. And even though we're playing songs like trombones on the rooftop and stuff like that, he was always like, we're playing music with a capital M. You know, it's like dead serious. And, uh, like all the band directors I knew, he was kind of enamored with the myth of himself, if that makes sense. Right, which is, yeah. So anyway, in the middle of my seventh grade year, Mr. Smith took a job in another town, and there are a few ways to handle this with a class if you're going to leave, right? Uh, so like, what would seem appropriate if you were going to, if you were a teacher and you were going to leave your class? I mean, I just think that, that, that you just say it maybe on like the last couple of days of class and then hope that the kids get you a card and then you just like get in your car and drive off. Okay. Well, there's a good way to handle it. I was thinking something like that too. Like you tell the class, but then you like have a pizza party the last day. Okay? Sure. Oh, sure. That would have been fine. Okay. So <laughs> that was not, that was not dramatic enough. Like we were not making a big enough deal about it. Mr. Smith had us all line up along the band room walls and he told me I was in charge of the CD player and I was to press play when he said, and then he said, and I hit play and this song starts playing the end of the road. <laughs> My boys to men. This is a moment for the end ages. of the road. And then he went down the line and hugged every person in his band, That's so weird. which was kind of sweet, but also very dramatic and he would say things to you like, goodbye, my friend. That's <laughs> so weird. That's what he said to me. No child needs to I was the last one because I was a CD player. I, anyway, right, yeah. Goodbye, you had the... goodbye friend. So. <laughs> also, he's just like going one town over. Y'all probably still see each other at I the know. same Dairy Queen. It was a state over, but yes. Okay, we're whatever. very close to other states. So, um, I mean, it seems kind of crappy to pick on him now. And God Whatever. knows I'm embarrassed of those years in middle school. When um, you were in middle school, <laughs> you were not a grown man. But it was super dramatic. I think my lesson is you can interpret an ending however you want. Uh, <laughs> even though this isn't what he intended, it is nonetheless a very hilarious, great moment that I will always remember. And I knew it was funny then, even as a seventh grader. I knew this this was too much and we're going to talk about this <laughs> when it's done. Even when I was in seventh grade and I was bopping along to Aerosmith, I knew this was funny. Did did anyone seem to be emotional? Yes. Like the girls? Yes. Well, that's just the thing. Like that, that, there was even a, a hilarious little bit in I think it was the first end of Green Gables book, book where they have a, a teacher, Mr. Phillips, and they all just like don't really like him because he was just like not very good at teaching. But when he left on his last day, he gave a very moving speech 
the whole time making eyes at the 16 year old girl he was courting <laughs> in the in the crowd and and tells marilla how like all of the girls just sobbed uncontrollably and he, he started his speech with like the time has come for us to part and they would <laughs> like they walked home from school and every now and then one of the girls would say that to each other and then they'd all start crying again because they just loved the they emotion loved the feeling. of it yes and they all hated mr phillips but they all still went through that and that was always like such a funny scene to me so this is exactly the same like so i'm sure there were some girls having their mr phillips moment oh he was definitely it's time for us to part kind of guy <laughs> he's definitely that kind of guy and then the next band director we got was like my best friend and he was hilarious and he was just talked to me about uh the 70s and how he was working on an arrangement of carlos santana's black magic woman and then i just get to cut class to help him set up stuff and everything we it, you totally shouldn't be doing that but he was hilarious i love that dude so, <laughs> no, <laughs> no boys to men cd from no him. <laughs> also it was very gross that mr phillips was courting like a 16 year old oh student sure in the class. yeah understood like, that was very gross but then also that was the times that's, that's why they do it up there in nova scotia before we name our top ending we feel compelled to list some honorable mentions i didn't have any <laughs> I, had some, I had some uh, uh, notorious mentions. I was going to say I'm still mad about the ending to Mass Effect, which is one of my favorite stories uh, of all time, because it, it was like the whole thing was like watching a building slowly fall down. They weren't telling a story; they were just reminding you over and over that was the end of the story. I was like, "Am I? Is this a its own story, or is this the end of something?" Like. What are you? What are you doing? What are you doing here? I love that our honorable mentions are just things that, that make us angry. <laughs> so my dishonorable mention is the fact that I thought that the film Casper, the 1995 film Casper, had a great ending because I remember that he turned into a real boy, and I remember that like a whole bunch of girls just like thought that was like the best thing ever. Like, oh, your own personal ghost friend turned into a boy. No, he only turned into a boy for like two hours and he got to do one dance and then he didn't even go into the light. Then then the ending of that movie was literally, he turns back into a ghost, the girl's dead mom floats back up to heaven and little Richard sings Casper the Friendly Ghost and Christina Ricci and Bill Pullman do swing dancing to it in the hall of their weird house. I'm like, what happened to Casper? And they were like, we need to not make this too ghosty. So anyway, that's a dishonorable mention yeah. for me. Casper okay. didn't go to the light. He didn't do anything. He didn't stay a boy. He didn't go to the light. He's just a stupid CG ghost for the rest of his afterlife. Were his uncles funny at all? Yeah, they were funny. Okay, good. They were cute. It was a cute movie until the end. I like the end of the Super Mario Brothers movie when, uh, is it the princess or Daisy or whatever, shows up with a big gun and says, you know, we've got to go through them pipes and do the Super Mario stuff. We never got to see that. <laughs> and, and then that, that book, uh, your friend Charity got me, the, the Farm Boy Must Die. I did not see the ending coming at all and got me very uh, excited about what would happen at the end. It was a very good ending to that. Okay. So. Well, I, you should tell her that. I'm gonna, I'll read it and I'll tell her. Oh, what's your number one pick? What's the number one best ending? Number one. In my eyes, there is no better way to go out than to go out like Apollo Creed mm -hmm. 
in 1985's Rocky IV. This is the last time we'll talk about the 80s. It's or the Apollo last Creed, ever. which I'm sure we've mentioned before. I've definitely mentioned Apollo Creed, but I'm going to talk about it in terms of the ending okay. for him. Because this ties into everything that we have said previously, right? Okay, now, the death of Apollo Creed in the ring is the inciting incident in the screenplay for Rocky IV, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's when the mega-Russian Ivan Drago hits him to death, which is mm -hmm. terrible. And then Rocky is, like, inspired to train with the gritty, tough, rootin' tootin' American good ingenuity or whatever heart. He's got heart. Mm -hmm. So he can train and fight. And he's not in the same weight class at all. At all. They're like 12 feet of height <laughs> difference apart or whatever. But that's like that's how it's treated in the, in the film. And of course, it's sort of seen as this moment where, uh, I don't know, all of the excess of the life of like living soft as a boxer, it's caught up with him. And, you know, like, because now like you can't rely on spectacle. You got to so-and-so and so-and-so. It's like his fatal flaw, like his Achilles heel was his flamboyant personality uh -huh. that's how the script treats it okay but i want to think about this from the perspective of apollo creed he went out in a magnificent way and for me i can't think of anything better than like the kind of spectacle and wonder of like dropping dead in the middle of your craft <laughs> on top of the world as far as you know and then the second that you're not anymore, you're dead. And you don't have to, you know what I mean? Like, you don't have to live with it. That's why I'm going to die in the middle of my spoon solo. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All eyes on you, baby. <laughs> Woo! Do it! Let's talk about... Be hand-boned to death. <laughs> Be hand-boned to death. <laughs> like, I tried to resuscitate him with my washboard and didn't His work. body saw his more hand-boning and it wouldn't go... <laughs> Okay, so let's talk about Apollo Creed's interest, entrance because I could watch this video on repeat every day for the rest of my life and it always just makes me feel good. Okay, so this is a big, big fight between Apollo Creed and Ivan Drago. The camera keeps cutting to a wide-eyed and confused Ivan Drago as Apollo Creed stages nothing less than an extravaganza to enter the ring. Okay, so this is a big thing. Like, he's just, like, dazzled and confused by this whole thing. And he also has a killer's mind because that's what they trained him yeah. to do. Whatever. All right. James Brown with a full band in powder blue tuxes, replete with a full horn section, struts onto the catwalk singing Living in America. And he sings the whole song, okay? In one you don't get that much in a movie anymore. I know. It does get the whole song. In one corner, we've got a dance troupe. In another corner, we got a showgirl troupe. There are flashing lights all over. There are old-timey airplanes on guide, water, guide wires, like, flying above. Um, up, up tall, there's, like, some spangly suit dudes and top hats. We don't even know who they are. There are pretty ladies waving little American flags on the catwalk. And then Apollo Creed descends on a platform in front of a massive prop that's a bull head with glowing red eyes and steam blowing from his nostrils. When I say all this out loud, it sounds insane, and it is. He's got his spangle outfit on with his top hat and his white boxing gloves that look like Mickey Mouse gloves. Like, he looks like every American character blown, blown to a ridiculous degree. 
And then Carl Weathers is hilarious the way he plays this. Because, first of all, he starts with a little step touch, like a little good-natured step touch, like, to get into it. And then it kind of, like, goes into a little strut, like he's being a little stinker and he's, like, strutting around. <laughs> and then by the end of the song, he's in a full-blown caper. Like, he is capering around into the ring. And, uh... It's ridiculous. We, especially now, like when the people first saw it, they didn't know. But we know he's doomed in this moment. Like, mm-hmm. we know he's doomed. Everything about this is signaling his doom. But it's almost like he, it's almost like he knows that and he's going out with a bang. Um, I live for this moment because he goes out of the world while he's on top of it. And his demise is going to plant the seeds and the impetus for the next generation. Because mm-hmm. we know his little son, little baby Adonis Creed, is going to be you know, doing this same thing. We know Rocky's going to do his thing. And they're all inspired. What a way to live! Yeah, he- oh yeah, the Creed movies is, is like, they did what Picard should have done. <laughs> exactly! Yeah. Exactly! And that's why that's the best ending ever. And I love Apollo Creed. Okay, so I think we definitely saw uh, some some uh, a good through line with these is that we don't like people arbitrarily putting a period on stuff. You like the rebirth or a new chapter. Yeah, the story always continues. Or should. Yeah, and I want to see... Even if it's a new story. Yeah, like let, let me be curious about something. Don't tell, don't tell me it's the end of it. I'll decide if it's the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll decide if your stinky story is worth ending or beginning. And then for some stories, you're like, yeah, that could be the end of that one. Uh and uh, so this will be the last episode of this show, but we will be continuing, as we mentioned earlier. Yes. So if you have thoughts on this list or just want to chat, email rumors at thewizardsnightshirt.com or hit us up on social media for no good reason. Where are we going to be? We're going to be on Twitter. Uh, we're going to change our handle. So if you see us changing our handle, don't freak out you didn't follow some new weird sexy lady spam account it's just us <laughs> we're going to be talking about Colonel holler and uh we'll try to be on instagram as well we will try to do it social media is exhausting but we will be there yeah especially as we start like doing the season the new season of uh Colonel holler and, and and things like that we'll, we'll lean more into that um we're gonna try. We're gonna try to push that a little bit. I yeah, think. we're gonna try to push that. It's really hard to create on a schedule, and then to promote it on top of that. It's like this whole other extra exhausting layer, and and whatever. I, I don't want to. We perish. live in Ohio. We're not networked. So. Exactly. We are very much the opposite of networked. Okay. This so, is not. So yeah, if you if you like it, and uh, you know someone else who would like it, if you know who, any LA fat cats, yeah, with a glass office, who any wanted, cigar limousine people, yeah, let us know. Yeah. Or you know, shoulder shoulder pad hoop earring ladies. If you know them, we would love to. Um, also, I'll mention too. Um, you can follow me personally if you want to on Twitter. I'm at Senator Cyborg. Uh, on Instagram, I am Senator underscore Cyborg. Or on Facebook, it's Will Malone. You can just look for me there if you want to do that. <laughs> but don't look for all of the ones who were Will Malone's who have opened email, who have opened accounts using your email address. Oh my God. Yeah. I made the mistake (laughs) of getting a great uh, Gmail address right when Gmail started. And now every young man and every old man in the country who has some permutation of my name keeps opening garbage accounts. And I don't know how many accounts I have canceled with that. It's ridiculous. (laughs) 
Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Keen Garrity, K-E-E-N-G-A-R-R-I-T-Y. Okay. Well, thank you for listening to our show. We're we'll, still here. And we will be releasing season three of oh. Curdle Holler in about a month or so. Yes. We will be it'll be the beginning it. of the spooky season, which starts very early for us. So thank you for listening. And we'll see you on down the road when we call forth new champions. The legends they tell of a hero Facing down fears and cutting down foes There's no resemblance to what you know When your own deeds feel humble and